Just a couple of things before we begin our study in God's Word this morning. It's hard to believe it was last week that I spent the early hours of Sunday morning in the emergency room having been bitten by a tick and having woken up on Sunday morning and finding that there was this great big red blotch uh, under my arm and um, a tick feasting upon me. And uh, how long it had been in my arm, I don't, don't know, but I saw the doctor during the week and he indicated because it was all red prior to pulling him out that he'd been in there a while, feasting his way and uh, injecting whatever bacteria they inject uh, that made it all red and irritated. <clears throat> and so he's tr- he wanted to treat it as if it was Lyme's disease. And what they had done at the hospital is they gave me a 10-day supply of doxycycline. And um, that's uh, uh, an antibiotic that as soon as I took it on Sunday, I just began to feel awful, which is why I never made it back on uh, Sunday evening. Actually, I'd, I mentioned it already, uh, I don't recall, no, I guess I hadn't taken it yet. But I mentioned in Sunday, in Sunday school, I, I had, had stomach distress, and, um, and that just got worse, I think, after the doxycycline. But anyway, my doctor extended it another four days. He wanted me on it for two weeks, and so I'm still on it. And I'm sort of, you know, back and forth with how, how, how great I'm feeling in terms of the reaction to it. Uh, I don't think it's symptoms of Lyme's or anything like that, but um, I'm still in treatment for that. The other thing was that is uh, just the result of last week and all of the things that were happening. Um, I didn't really have notes about what I did on the Sunday school. I didn't have any recollections so much of what I did. So I went back and I listened to it. I rarely ever listen to any sermon I preach or any study I do. I do. Besides, I am my worst critic, and I probably would never want to preach again after hearing me. And last week, I have to confess. What a stream of consciousness I threw at you for a sustained 45 minutes. And um, I hardly took a break. But um, I, had, I didn't recall, but I actually did hear that we actually did go through the entirety of Romans 8. Not uh, in depth in any way, looking at it, uh, I think, in some sense of adequacy. But, uh, you know, always can do a big, big improvement on what was done. But I hadn't realized I'd covered all that ground. And so when I thought about what to do today, I think I mentioned on the tape that last week that uh, we look at perhaps at some highlights that we really did not cover. And so that's pretty much what I'm going to do, is I'm going to look with you at some of the highlights that we didn't cover that I feel that uh, need some further expansion. So turn, if you will, in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And um, one of the things I didn't go into in any degree of depth at all, in fact, I don't even know that I read it, is that section that oftentimes is called the golden chain of um, redemptive reality, so the golden chain of salvation. It's what we find in the words of verse 29 and 30. And it's on the heels of Paul saying that we know all things uh, work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And it's in the mention of uh, being called according to purpose, of being loved by God, uh, and hence we love him in return. We love because he first loved us. And that Paul chains together these uh, actions on God's part, things that God does with respect to his people. And it's placed in terms of a personal reference, whom, he says, not what he knew or foreknew, but whom is the people he foreknew. He says he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For some reason that part, be conformed to the image of his son, gets, uh, gets uh, excluded from the reckoning of the golden chain that people talk about. Because they want to move on to not just the fact that God's purpose is to conform us to Christ and to his image, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. That's another fact in the passage that gets overlooked quite a bit. But what really is concerning people who like to talk about this golden chain is that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that's the, the great chain of salvation, that we were predestined and called and justified and glorified. 
And Paul puts it in the past tense. And what tends to get uh, presented, or at least argued about most, is this whole matter of the predestination of God, foreknowledge and its relationship to predestination. And it's an interesting thing. A couple of things are interesting about coming to this passage at the particular time in our congregation's life when we're looking at it. First of all, Ray Trainer was here last uh, two weeks ago when we last were in this passage. Which, which kind of means, no, I, I, no, the stream of consciousness came before the morning and, never mind, I got it all wrong. I got my facts wrong, I got, my, I got the calendar wrong, it's all messed up. It's a blur. It's a blur. And that might have something to do with this passage in a minute that we might get to. But when Ray was here, when we were in Romans 8 before, last, first time I think he preached, having gone over to England and having started to train for the ministry, he came and visited us and preached in a morning sermon on that very golden chain of salvation. How many were here to remember that? You probably were here, but you don't remember it because we just don't remember the sermons the week after. But nonetheless, I remember it. I remember he preached on the passage. I remember he did a very good job in preaching the passage, and I mentioned it to him. I said, Ray, uh, when you were here last, uh, a couple of times, first time you were here preaching, you preached on that very passage. And he looked at me and he said, uh, I wish I didn't. And I said, no, it was actually very good. But he was sort of sensitive about that because I think when we're very young in our faith, particularly coming into what gets called the doctrines of grace early on, we're very rabid on these things. And, and, and so that's one factor uh, that enters into approaching this. Uh, Ray's observation that maybe it's not the kind of passage he would then run to in his more mature years. And then the other thing is that recently, this, just this week, I had a conversation with somebody who has been wrestling with this, this very aspect of biblical truth, this whole question of predestination, foreknowledge, calling, and the rest. And this person uh, informed me that at one time he was a zealous advocate and now has become very much opposed to some of his former understandings. And just in talking to him and talking to Ray and thinking it through myself, I've come to the conclusion there's basically two major problems with the way in which evangelical Christians on both sides of the issue, whatever side you fall on, um, that enters into this. And that's we, we approach these things with very superficial understandings and all the while thinking we know a whole lot more than we really do know. And we're very reluctant to allow the text itself to instruct us, to teach us, and to be satisfied with what the text is saying to us, and not go on a hunt to try to modify every other text of God's Word to make it fit in with what we think is a proper understanding of this particular passage. In other words, we can take this passage and make it almost the whole of our view of how God works in the world, how God's um, purpose is, uh, and how God relates, how God relates uh, to the world. We think we know a whole lot more than we really do know. Because, I mean, when you think about this whole matter of foreknowledge, Again, in and of itself, it's speaking of a matter of time. There was a time when God beforehand had gnosis or knowledge. That's the Greek word for knowledge. He had uh, proto or prior or pro-gnosis. He knew beforehand certain things. And when we think of that, we think in terms of being creatures of time, do we not? We think in terms of before and after. Well, there's a time before he knew something, and um, then he did something on basis of that prior knowledge. And we think in temporal terms. And then we think of how uh, this matter of God's predestination is also something that guarantees that we are justified and glorified, and, and that's future. And again, we look at those things as creatures of time. And I was thinking about this because Matters of time, I think, impinge upon us all, especially when, and this is in my case, moving into my 71st year that's coming up in another month, less than a month, a couple weeks, my 71st birthday, I will have celebrated. And the whole question of time, just as a, as a human being living in this world, just impresses in upon me. And I think of matters of past and I think of future in relationship to the present. And I notice, as you notice, how often it is that we get sidetracked 
by past memories, or we get sidetracked by things people have done with us, to us in the past that we can't change. We can't alter it. And, and yet we allow it to so fill our minds, fill the whole field of our vision, that we're troubled. And we're sidetracked, perhaps. And it's in our minds a whole lot more than we should. And there's a lot of times I just determine in my own mind, I've got to get rid of those past thoughts because it's not doing me any good in the present. Can't change it. Can't alter it. It's there. But it's just not part of my future because I can't do anything about it. And then I look at the future and I realize the days are dwindling down uh, to a precious few, as an old song went. The days dwindle down to a precious few. And um, that can become an issue that you think about quite a lot. And the whole matter of endeavoring, sometimes we think in terms of living in the moment. I can only live right now, this moment. I can't live in the past, and the future has not yet come, so I have to live in the moment. And think about that as a creature of time, how hard that is. How hard that is not to let the past catch up with you, not to let the future spook you out and haunt you and trouble you. I just to live in the moment. Now think of that as human beings. We wrestle with those matters of past, present, and future. Or the past and the future impinging upon the present moment. God is always living in the moment. <laughs> and in the moment, all things are apparent to his eyes from eternity. From eternity. He's not a creature of time. Time's a created reality. God made the sun and the moon for days and seasons. It's not a reality that is inherent in him. And that means whatever this matter of knowing beforehand involves, and we looking at it in terms of human beings who have past, present, and future, defined for us in human terms. You have to realize that what God has told us about his foreknowledge or his actions for knowing and predestining is something that we can and should receive, but in comparison to what the reality is in him, we know so little. We know so little. We know in part, we prophesy in part, Paul says about things in general. To think about God's internal workings, the workings of his mind, the workings of his will, the workings of his purpose, and the fact that this is an eternal being with no past, present, and future distinctions such as we, we have. And these are things he, he relates to us in, in human terms. To foreknow something, to determine on something, to predestine something. Yes, it conveys actions that God does that affect us very re really. But can we diagnose it in terms of how God came up with this? And how God determined this? How God... No, absolutely not. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? We cannot enter into the eternal thoughts of God with any degree of clarity of understanding because we are creatures to whom it is said his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. As heaven is high above the earth, so high is his thoughts above our thoughts, his ways above our ways. So we run the risk of two things. Number one, we run the risk of thinking very superficially that we know more about this stuff than we really do. And we know more about it than what God himself has revealed. And so that's just one superficial way of approaching it. And the other way of superficially approaching it is just saying, hey, this is so hard and so difficult, why bother? And so we act as if this doesn't have really anything at all to say to us or anything at all to communicate to us. And my recommendation is, don't try to figure out God's mind. Don't try to figure out his eternal plan and purposes as if you had some access to the internal workings of the deity. You do not. We do not. The only thing we know about these things is what he's revealed to us, and what he's revealed to us is for our learning. What he's revealed to us is for our benefit and our blessing. But let's not take what he's revealed to us as God condescends to our weak humanity as creatures of past, present, and future and tells us something about his purposes and his will and his determinations and his doings with respect to us in matters of an eternal God working as he works eternally in ways that have no relation to past, present, and future in him although it does condescending to us, and think we can make a correlation between our experience and God's experience. You can't, but yet it's for our learning. 
It's for our comfort. It's for our encouragement. So let's be careful not to make conclusions beyond which Scripture itself provides us with. But let's be bold enough to go where Scripture leads. Kind of like Star Trek. Bold enough to go to visit unknown areas we've never been. But don't go beyond what our capacities are. I think we could enter into the divine thoughts with any degree of comprehension. And hence, we will approach this subject with humility. We approach the subject with just simply the reality that we're reading about God's ways with us. How God works and how God operates. And Lord, we're thankful for what you've given us to know. But help us not to hang ourselves on these things by pressing it beyond what God himself has spoken. Okay? Now, the first thing to notice about these things is that it's, it's revealed to Christians. This is God telling us how we are to see ourselves. It's God's people who are being conformed to the image of his Son. It's God's people who are living in the world as those who are moving out of slavery into sonship, as we saw in previous studies, uh, moving in the terms of present suffering to future glory. And, and God's purpose is in the midst of the reality of our present sufferings to give us the encouragement that these present sufferings are not things that are going to destroy us. These are not things that are going to hinder the reality of his grace and purpose with us. And, and it's hard to conceive that it, that it wouldn't. Uh, partly because we're not only moving from slavery to sonship, from suffering to glory, we're also moving from old covenant to new covenant. You know, old covenant to new covenant, the interesting thing is that when Paul says such things as, what shall separate us from the love of Christ in verse 35? And he mentions tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Go to Leviticus 26, and you see when God gives curses to the nation for covenant disobedience, that they don't do his law, the people of Israel are not faithful to abide by God's laws and do his will. God says, this is exactly what I'm going to bring on you. And he says, cursed are you when I bring upon you tribulation. Cursed are you when I bring upon you distress. Cursed are you. When I bring upon you persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword, those are the curses of the covenant in Leviticus to the old covenant people of God. That's a sign of God's displeasure. And Paul's now saying that in Christ, there is no separation from the love of Christ. Now, if you saw in the Old Testament, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword come upon the Old Testament people of God, you would say God's displeased with his people. And you're rightly so. Because this is part of the covenant curse. Y'all, y'all get that? Under the Old Covenant. They're going to be brought under God's judgment. God's not working for them. He seems to be working against them. He's working with Assyrians against them. He's working with Babylonians against them. Uh, he's brought them under tribulation and distress and sword and, and all the rest. And yet there's a sense in which, because of Christ's coming, because of Christ doing what he's done for us, uh, back in verse 34, it says, Who is, who, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's because of Christ. It's because of Christ's dying. Because of Christ's rising. Because of Christ's ascension to the right hand of God. Because of Christ's interceding. But there's no condemnation. There's no curse. Because you see, the one who died and rose and ascended and intercedes, he's the one who bore the curse. Christ became a curse for us. As is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians chapter 3. Jesus is the curse bearer. And he's the curse bearer for all who believe in him. All who have trusted in him. And there's no curse remaining. Even though there's still a curse upon the world. Again, relationship what we saw last week. The world is still under the curse. The creation groans and travails, waiting for its 
the revelation of the, of the children of God. Creation was not subjected to futility willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God has cursed the earth for the man's sake. That curse still remains. The world is still under the curse. And so when earthquakes are taking place in many regions of the country of the world, I just saw the thing on YouTube just yesterday about earthquakes and volcanoes in Iceland. I'm glad it's not well populated because it seems like that's a that's a part of the world that's in a lot of trouble with regard to changes and rumblings in, in the earth. Um, but places where there's tsunamis, places where there's t- uh, um, hurricanes that are devastating the, the world, we're still under the curse. And we're still under the curse of the reality that it's still the wicked who populate the world. The, the righteous are not yet in the kingdom of glory. We're in the world of sin and of woe. And troubles abound. And God's people in the midst of that are troubled by the troubles of the world. And we don't escape it until we are out of this world in glory or until the entire creation is renovated when Christ returns. And so we face the troubles of this world and the sufferings of this world. But we suffer in a different way. We suffer in a way that now Christ's sufferings transform our sufferings. Sufferings mean something different to us than what they meant to the old covenant people of God. Sufferings of tribulation and famine and nakedness and sword and peril and disease and all the rest that came upon the Old Testament people of God was because they had been covenantly unfaithful. Now sometimes the righteous suffered in the midst of that. That's where Psalm 44 comes in. Psalm 44 is a picture of the righteous who sought God and who served God and yet are caught up in the reality that the nation is sent away or the nation is brought under captivity and judgments come upon the nation because of its sin in general. Look at uh, Psalm 44. This is the righteous speaking. It says, O oh God, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what day, deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So you, 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 you dealt with your people. You afflicted the other nations, but not your nation. Um, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm um, did they save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Lord, you are with your people. You are for your people. They conquered the Canaanites because of your presence with them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. And again, that was the truth with respect to the covenantly obedient and the faithful ones. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes. You have put to shame those who hate us. In God we've boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But, but, you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. Again, you see that we're moving past the time of the initial entry into the land. At that time, everything that proceeds in the psalm was true. You performed these great deeds in their days of our fathers, in the days of old. You performed these great deeds in driving out the nations. You planted your people. You afflicted the others and you set your people free. You fought with your people. You delighted in your people. Through you we pushed down our foes. But that's all past tense. What happened in the nation of Israel once they entered into the land? I'll read uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. Once they got into the land, they began to bow down before the Baals. They began to be unfaithful. They began to forsake the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah's assessment is, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you've dug out for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So it's a marvelous thing. Has a nation ever forsaken their gods? What nation has ever forsaken their gods? The gods of the nations don't forsake Allah. I mean, they will if they get converted, but just generally speaking, the nations serve their gods until the nations go out of, be- out of existence. They-, they serve their gods. 
But Israel had a God who worked for them, who blessed them, who planted them, who fought for them, who secured blessings and benefits for them. But the nation as a whole turned away from God. And the judgment came upon the nation because of the sins of the most of them. But yet the righteous suffer in the midst of all of that, do they not? I mean, Jeremiah was there when the Babylonian chariots came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city. And he was forced to leave with exiles that were looking to flee to Egypt. And he was a righteous man. And he was made to suffer. And so, again, there's the complaint. Verse 11, you've made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. And who are the us? It's the obedient people of God. It's the covenantly faithful people of God. And it's that picture that has its analog in the New Testament. God's people do not, are not exempted from suffering. God's people, like Israel of old, when faithful believers suffered for the sake of the majority of the nation that were guilty of idolatry and apostasy, the righteous suffered, even in the Old Testament. The curse wasn't for them. The curse was for the disobedient. And God raised up Jeremiah to be a prophet to prophesy for the sake of the believing exiles. To tell them where their prosperity did lay and where their blessing would be and where um, their salvation would be secured. And so God raised up prophets for their sake. But now we live in a world in which, again, evil exists. And there's no guarantee we're not going to fall into troubles and difficulties. And the very things that were viewed as curses under the Old Covenant are no curses any longer for the believer. Just as Jeremiah was not cursed of God when he was led into exile and brought into, into Egypt, God loved him, smiled on him, upheld him, supported him, even when the nation was judged. The comfort is for us as the people of God under the new covenant is that our sufferings are different because of an event that has happened in history where Christ has come and Christ has suffered for us. He suffered the just one for the unjust ones that he might bring us to God. That through his sufferings we have access into the presence of God, into the favor of God, into the blessings of God. And part of our sufferings, as Paul tells us, is an aspect of conformity to Jesus. That's why he says in verse 11, he says, I'm sorry, not verse 11, it's verse 17. That if children, then your heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. Christ is in glory, and he will receive us into glory. Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. He will say to the righteous in that day, but yet we are those who live in this world subject to suffering as believers in the Christ who suffered for us. His suffering was the suffering that took away the curse. His sufferings was that of becoming a curse for us. Our sufferings are part of our conformity to him. Part of being transformed by his grace into his likeness. And hence it's part of the whole process of God's education of his children bringing us into greater degrees of conformity to Jesus, the Jesus who suffered and the Jesus who was glorified. And so, suffering means something different to us as the people of God. It's part of the discipline that God treats with his children. Uh, it's part of what God uses to build character in his children through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. So our suffering is not useless. It's not just pain without reason. It's, not, you know, it's one of the real parts of suffering that's very difficult for people. Why? Why is this happening? It doesn't have any rhyme or reason to it. It's just misery for its own sake. Well, no. No. 
When God is at work in us through our trials, through our troubles, through our difficulties, to teach us the lessons of his grace, well, that's part of education. That's part of Christian advancement in conformity to the image of Christ. That's what Paul's putting forward. And he wants us to know that this whole scheme that God has at work for his people to make us conform to the image of Christ is not something that happens just by happenstance. It's part of his purpose. And that's where he gets into this whole question of predestination and foreknowledge. It's for whom he foreknew. Whom he regarded, whom he loved, whom he concerned, was committed to, in an eternal purpose of grace. And when Paul makes that statement, that Christian realize that God had you marked out long before you had any existence. He said to Jeremiah, before you, you came into, from your mother's womb, I knew you. I knew you. I foreknew you. And that's not what I foreknew about you. God foreknows everything. But I foreknew you with a, with a knowledge of intimacy and of regard and of love and of commitment. For God to say that to you and me as his people is not to tell us, well, reason out from that the fact that other people are not foreknown of God and therefore they're garbage and we're the really important ones and so we should have just the high estimation of who we are as the people of God and the very low estimation of the world and having love and concern for them. God foreknew us, not them. Why should we forelove them or be concerned about them at all? You know, that's what some people will say, that, hey, Calvinists have a real problem with evangelism. They don't have a heart for people. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes they're so caught up with their sense of their own identity, their sense of their own calledness and foreknownness and predestinatedness and all of the rest, that they conclude from the fact that God has dealt with them in grace, the fact that uh, tickets have all been sold, folks. Why even preach the gospel? What's that? They have why even preach the gospel? If if that's what had to tell the reason. That's all the reason. But I, I'm thinking of the, of the empathy. I'm thinking of the heart. Because I think what happens is we try to reason from uh, the foreknowledge of God to something about the inner state of God's heart towards those that are not foreknown. That means he abominates them. He loathes them. He has no regard for them, no concern for them. He didn't foreknow them. So why should we, we, could be, why should we be concerned about them? I think that's how it, that's how it happens. And there are people who have very little heart for the unsaved, very little heart for the lost, because they've reasoned out from a proposition God has addressed to us to say, look at how I favored you. He's not saying, look at how I disfavored them. He's not saying that. There's a single passage that says, because you've been favored and you've been foreknown and you've been foreloved and you've been, that means God doesn't care about them. Not saying that at all. It's something he addresses to his people. And we can't tell from what he addresses to his people what the state of his heart. Don't even try to figure out the state of God's mind and heart. You judge God by his actions. He foreknew us. He foreloved us. These are the things he did for us. And he's not saying he's not willing to do it for anybody else. In fact, he tells us, as you say, to go preach the gospel with every reason to believe that God has a genuine intent for people to come to him. When he, Jesus says, come to me, he's not mocking them. He's not saying, well, I know you really can't, so... No, he's saying, come to me. He's not putting boundaries. He's not putting borders. He's not putting a way not to, not to receive. There's no, there's no sign put up, tickets all sold. No. All the seats are taken, so nobody else needs to apply. No. But I think that's what we do with these texts, is we try to reason out what we don't know and try to judge from the fact that, well, because God has apparently made these distinctions, that that means. Well, whenever you try to say, well, that means, try to find some Bible support for what you think that means. But I don't think it means that God does not love the lost. I don't think that means that God doesn't have compassion to the lost. I don't think that means that we shouldn't be praying for the lost and seeking the lost and having concern for the lost or having grace to the lost. 
You know, when someone comes to you and begins to pour out their hearts to you and tell you about their problems and tell you all about their troubles and tell you all about their, you know, how they've blown their lives and they feel themselves worthless, what do you do? You agree with them? <laughs> you say, you're right. You are worthless. And God thinks so too. I hope you don't do that. I hope you say, God offers you grace. There's forgiveness with him that he may be feared. You, t- you talk Bible to them. You give biblical hope, you give biblical promises, you tell them biblical truths, because God reveals his heart and his word, not in your conclusions from a proposition that God gave you for your good and your benefit, that you should be encouraged in the midst of a fallen, troubled, conflicted world, that there's nothing going to separate you from his love. That's what this whole business is about in the passage anyway. And all this is part of conformity to Christ. And God has it all in his own plan and purpose. And he knows what he's doing so you can trust him. I think that's directed to the people of God for our benefit. So I'm with those who have said, well, it's fine to be in the university of election and predestination. Visit the scholars there every now and again saying, I appreciate your high-mindedness and your ivory tower. But as for me, I live in the practical reality of, 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 of grace and of salvation and of the call to repentance and faith and those basic elementary biblical truths. And I could take comfort from the reality of a God who has it all under control, has it all eternally in his mind and in his purpose, and is working out his plan and purpose in accordance with his will. And I could take comfort from that, but I shouldn't draw conclusions from that. That, are, that, that put me clearly in territory that's not biblical. So you all with me on that? Or questions about that? Again, I think it's a question of just holding on to Scripture. Of faith holding on to Scripture. Of the actual statements that God has given us in His Word. That we always can draw comfort from, and solace from, and encouragement from. And I'll take what God's revealed and then just go on a a free-ranged mental gymnastics to make all kinds of conclusions that are not biblical and that are unwarranted at the end of the day. So those are basically the things I wanted to cover. The golden chain, Christ's sufferings that transform our sufferings. And, and, and then I guess well, the other thing I, I'd just like to say is just to underscore uh, these four great questions that Paul raises. Um, when he says, what should we say to these things? What should we say to the reality of a God whose purpose is to conform us to the image of his Son? It's an eternal purpose. It's a purpose that's in his heart and mind. He's known what he's doing from beginning to end. He has it all under control. What should we say to these things? Well, here's what you should say. First of all, it's, it's, it, it, I know it's a, it's a conditional statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? But the reality is, since God is for us, it's not an iffy thing. It's not a question. Does he love me? Does he not? Is he with me? Is he not? It's really a matter of reality. God is for us. And oftentimes conditional statements are like that. Sometimes they can be translated, not if, but since. Since. Since this is a reality. Here's the encouragement that you can have. Who can be against you? Who can be against you? What weapon can be formed to destroy you? If you belong to Christ, or you are his child, you are the one whom he has foreknown and foreloved and predestined to be conformed to his, his son. And also, I should note that God's purpose in all this is to glorify Jesus as well. Is that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. And Paul uses two expressions in the passage that are is of interest. In verse 23, he speaks of the first fruits of the Spirit. And uh, verse 29, he speaks of the firstborn among many brethren. And both of those statements, you really have to go back to the Old Testament to unpack what it means. Um, with respect to the first fruits, do you remember what the first fruits were in Israel? 
in an agricultural community, you'd be waiting for your, you know, the seed you sow, you, 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 the seed that was sown in the ground to, to be a fruit in the harvest. And, and what would happen when harvest would begin? What was the Israelite responsible to do when he began to take in the harvest? There was something called the first fruits, yes? It was given to the Lord. Given to the Lord. Okay, what did that mean, given to the Lord? Let somebody else answer. What's that? Let somebody else answer. <laughs> he, gave, he gave the best of what he had. Yeah. For, you know, the best of what he had was for God. Yes. Nothing less. Yeah, but it would, be, it would be brought to the sanctuary. Right. The first fruit. It would be brought to the sanctuary. It would be brought to the temple or the tabernacle, the place of worship. And for the purpose, you're actually feeding the, the priests. The, the, again, the priests didn't have the role. I mean, they had, you know, they were working in the temple. They, they couldn't be out there harvesting their crops. So some did. Some had land. There were uh, Levitical cities and the rest. But the priests needed to be supported. And that was the way that they were supported, by the free will offerings of the people actually bringing, to the, bringing into the tabernacle of the first fruits of the harvest. But the first fruits was the, the, the expression of gratitude in the recognition Hey, there's another. There's a whole field there to bring in. I brought, brought in the first fruits right away. You bring it to the temple. Bring it to God. Bring it to the place of, of of the meeting of the people of God. The place of worship for the purposes of those that serve the the, the temple or the tabernacle. Be look what God's given to me out there, and the first fruits is sort of like the realization. Look what God's blessed me with. Look what's still to come. And the Holy Spirit is like that with respect to the blessings of salvation. It's the first part, you might say, because it's the first thing that we encounter of the powers of the age to come. God gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit testifies to the fact that there's this great harvest still to come. Harvest the blessings that are still to be brought in. There's the reality of the new creation. There's the reality of a new heavens and new earth. There's the reality of the powers of the age to come that we come to sample a little bit of in this life through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. But there'll be that fullness of blessing that will come to us. And so the Spirit is seen in terms of first fruits. It's just a down. It's also called the down payment of our future inheritance. Again, it's the reality that there's still so much more to come. That what we have now is just a little bit of a taste of coming glory, of the coming blessings of this great salvation. And then um, this whole matter of our adoption, our conformity to Jesus, is that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And the matter of the firstborn, remember Esau and Jacob? That Jacob had, uh, Esau had the rights of the firstborn. Um, he was born first, minutes before his brother. And therefore he had the rights of the firstborn, uh, the rights to the inheritance, the larger inheritance, the double portion of the inheritance, and he also had the blessing. He was the one whom his father would, would, would bless. And um, so this matter of the firstborn uh, points out that the inheritance um, in the fuller measure belongs to the firstborn. Um, and yet he has responsibilities with respect to the other members of the family to be concerned about them. But though he has a right of preeminence, the right of preeminence, and so it's with Jesus, that he um, is the model for our conformity. And so that in the age to come, uh, again, he has the preeminence. In the church he has the preeminence. He has the preeminence, preeminence over all things. Um, but that these many brethren would be gathered um, for his glory. Again, I think it's part of what uh, Isaiah speaks about in Isaiah 53, when it says, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Um, again, he's the one who's exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, but his purpose is to prosper in doing the will of God and bringing many sons to glory. And that he would see his, his seed. Jesus' death and resurrection secures the redemption of all the people of God. 
And so there's a Christ-centeredness there, and there's also the, the comfort of the knowledge of God's purpose and provision. And um, again, it's in that, that sense that we know that God is for us, and no one can be against us. And then verse 32, there's a second question he asks. He, he was, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Very likely, the language of he did not spare his own son goes back to Abraham's on Mount Moriah, um, about to take the life of his son, and the angel coming and saying to Abraham to spare his son, to spare his own son, to not take uh, the life of Isaac. But God caused the knife to enter his son, caused Jesus to suffer the full extent uh, for our sins. He did not spare. Abraham spared his son. He spared Isaac. But God did not spare the son of his love. But he gave him up for us all. And if God did that greater thing, if he didn't spare us the greater gift, how will he not give us every other needed gift? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things that we need to persevere in faith and faithfulness. All things that we need to endure the trials and troubles and difficulties of this life. All things that we need to be more and more conformed to the image of his Son. And then the challenge. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a a, a charge uh, against us when it is God who's in the place of our justifier? God has said we have been made right with him. We have been accepted by him. And who can bring any charge against God's elect? Maybe there you're thinking of Job and Satan coming in the presence of God and bringing a charge against uh, God's servant Job. Does does Job serve you for, for no reason? He's in it just for what he gets. He's a mercenary. Well, there's no charge that can stick against God's people. It is God who justifies his people. Who is to condemn? I'm sorry. There's a... Actually, there's five questions if we include what shall we say to these things. There's five questions. That's where I messed up. I should have actually begun the four with he did not spare his own son. But the fifth one is the previous one. What shall we say to these things? So there's five questions. And then uh, the fourth of which is who is to condemn... Who can condemn the child of God? Who can bring a charge of condemnation against one whom God has justified, especially in light of Jesus' work for us? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And the final question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, danger or sword, All those things that were curses of the covenant and the old covenant are not curses anymore. The curse has been removed from us. And these things rather belong to our conformity to Jesus as part of the sufferings of this present life. And it doesn't separate us from the love of Christ any more than the cross separated Christ from the love of his Father. The cross did not separate the one who took our sins upon himself when he died on the cross. If the love of his father was still towards him, there's a sense in which, you know, in terms of the imputation of our sins to him, he was loathed by his father, but yet he was loved. Yet he was loved. Ever upheld and ever supported, even when the sense of his own being supported might have been left from his heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he wasn't actually forsaken. He was supported and upheld even when the sense of his soul was that the darkness of the reality of the judgment that our sins deserved, yet he was loved and he was supported. And If Christ endured that for us, how can anything separate us from his love? How can anything separate us from his love? None of these things. In all these things, he says, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're super conquerors. We're conquerors over and above. It's part of the more than that Paul speaks about often in this letter. 
Much more than, much more than, much more than, we are victors. We will not be defeated. We will not be destroyed. We will not be condemned. And then he gives that great final statement. I'm certain, I'm sure, that all these contrasts, death or life, or angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't get more certain than that. It doesn't get more secure than that. It doesn't get more assured than that. Of course. God get to do his work and the problem that we think is so big and then he do he work for it and then we see just go through we, he help us to go through it and the end sometimes we don't just do don't do anything he do all his work mm-hmm. and when he give the glory to him because he gives us the peace the faith mm-hmm. and the strength to, to stay mm-hmm. not to run away but to stay and believe that he will do it yeah yeah, there's nothing better than time-tested Christian experience <laughs> to experience the fact that the gospel works and not just, not just theory. It's not just something that's propounded by, you know, if a preacher is trying to sell you something, <laughs> it's something that actually works in the life experience of the people of God. Nothing beats that reality of coming to understand that. I forgot who I said that to recently, just have got, having gone through something. I don't remember what it was, but I, meant, I, meant, I did mention that. Hey, this thing really does work. This thing is not just theory. Amen. Amen. That's the great thing about the gospel. It's true. You mentioned that one time about a man who was, on, I don't know if he was a pastor or what, but a friend, or, that he was on his deathbed and he said that this works. Dean Allen. Yeah, Dean Allen, when he died on his deathbed, that's what he said. He said it works. When somebody could tell you that, dying. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the comfort that this passage gives to your children. We're thankful for the realities that are present in this passage. And we're thankful we as your people can draw from those realities strength and, and comfort and consolation and encouragement. We pray, Lord, that we would not take any of these things that you mean for our good and turn it into something evil because we take true principles and turn it on its head and and look to reason out unjustified and unbiblical conclusions. Help us to be humble before you. Help us to receive your word with meekness. Help us to be able to live with the mysteries that your word presents, to live with the realities that we just don't understand because all of your truth involves an eternal, infinite, unchangeable deity. Lord, You all truth explodes in mystery before your reality of who you are. And so, Lord, we pray that we would humbly receive with meekness the engrafted word that's able to save our souls, able to build us up, able to encourage us, able to bring persevering faith and faithfulness in the midst of a difficult, troubled, and fallen world. So help us to live as your children. Help us to live as those who are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.